Good morning, and thanks so much for tuning in today. Whether you're enjoying your morning coffee, on your way to a hike, or headed to breakfast at one of our many chamber member restaurants, we appreciate that you're joining us for Profiles in Business. This is our opportunity to talk business and highlight what's happening in our community. I want to thank some of our show sponsors. These sponsors are members of the Tucson Metro Chamber because they support the work we do workforce development, talent attraction, legislatively, and more. All that affect not only Tucson businesses, but our community as a whole. After all, our mission is to champion an environment where your business thrives and our community prospers. So we want to thank those sponsors, Paragon Space Development Corps, Pima Community College, ProVentures, and SOMAS. Another one of our top chamber members is our special guest today. I'd like to welcome Dr. Syra Kalia. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So Dr. Kalia is the adult psychiatry outpatient medical director at Banner, and she's also a perinatal an educator and serves as the Associate Training Director for the Department of Psychiatry Residency Program at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. She's well regarded in the Tucson community and has earned numerous accolades for her role as an educator and for her patient-centered care. More recently, she earned the Arizona Psychiatric Society's Howard E. Whistlin Excellence in Education Award. Thank you. It's an educator award and a, as part of the training program. That's an award that's really special to me. So I'm lucky to have earned it. How common are mental health conditions? Really, really common. Um, and I think this is where the conflation also takes a serious issue because everybody's like, oh, I'm depressed. I have anxiety. And the day-to-day -day common uh, layperson discussion of depression is not the same as what I would call clinical depression. That being said, when you look at sort of the National Alliance of Mental Illness, their data will suggest one in five U.S. adults experience a mental illness each year. And that's a very broad definition, right, of mental illness, which covers pretty much anything from depression, anxiety, to, to schizophrenia, bipolar disorders, to substance abuses. And so really a large people, a large volume of humans, especially U.S. in the U.S., will experience uh, mental illness. And then it becomes an issue of what are you calling mental illness? So it's like anything or serious mental illness, because that's also a distinction that things like the National Institute of Mental Health um, will use those two broad categories. So they will consider anti any mental illness and serious mental illness. And so when you think about 2019, for example, in 2019, there were an estimated of 51.5 million U.S. adults with any mental illness. So that's like 20.6% of all U.S. adults. So when you look at that kind of data range, 20.6% um, of all U.S. adults, that's one in five U.S. adults, which is think about your family members, think about, you know, people you come in contact with, one in five of them have experienced a mental illness. That is a huge number. It is a really huge number, which is also why I think there's such a discussion about mental wellness and mental health. And it's a very important discussion to keep in mind. The other thing to consider is also women. Um, and I know that I kind of, just because I tend to focus more in uh, women's mental health anyways, but even uh, when you kind of look at prevalence data, the prevalence is higher amongst females. So any mental illness is about 24.5% in women uh, versus 16% in men. So uh, regardless, you're looking at a higher rate when it comes to women. What about children? Children 
is a different context, right? So depends on the age group. So each age range, uh, subcategory of age group, there is a difference. And so um, about ages six to 17, one in six um, kids in that age range will have a mental health disorder each year, which is also pretty high. And then when you kind of break that down, because in my head, um, you know, young adults are also still developing, uh, their brains are still growing. So the highest rate of uh, any mental illness is in young adults aged 18 to 25, and they're about 29.4% prevalence of any mental illness, which is also ridiculously high. What are some of the most widespread or common mental health conditions? So this is a complicated answer. Technically, um, anxiety is the most common. So about 30% of U.S. adults will experience any anxiety disorder at any point in their lives. The other one that kind of gets up there is depressive disorders. And so, uh, and those are the two umbrella terms, right? Because when you're talking about anxiety disorders, there are many sub conditions within those disorders. Um, and so in those two umbrella terms, you have anxiety disorders will almost always win and then followed closely by depressive disorders. This becomes a problem also when you think about sort of the idea of substance use disorders, because substance use disorders have such a um, overlap when it comes to mental illness that they're also pretty common. Um, so I feel like I haven't given you a clear answer, but kind of all those three conditions. Well, and you might cover this later in the interview, but a question I have is, is so, you know, I can sit there and say, I have anxiety. I can't sleep because I have anxiety, heart racing, or can't slow my mind down. Do you have to be officially diagnosed with anxiety or is, that, is this something that might have an overuse of the term? Yes, I do think that the terms like anxiety and depression are overused. And when a clinician looks at it, it's a very different understanding of what um, clinically depressed, what clinical depression, clinical anxiety is, and people do use it a lot. And I will come across this when people will show up in my office and say, well, you know, everybody worries and everybody has problems concentrating and they want to avoid friends sometimes. And, you know, it's kind of normal. And there is, there is a, there's a gradient where distress is part of the human condition. As you're going to be a human, you're going to experience distress, you're going to experience stress, you're going to experience um, some level, you know, excessive worrying. But there is a clinical switch when it comes to now it's a problem that you need help with. Um, and part of the reason I would consider thinking about it is functionality. Can I do the things I want to do, What I things I was able to do? Can I handle daily problems and stress or am I unable to handle them or I have extreme reactions or um, the things I'm able, I was able to do is just shrinking over time. So my functionality and my capacity is decreasing over time. And these are things that are harder to keep track of for yourself, you know, from a day-to-day -day, um, perspective, which is why friends and family are such uh, a helpful sense, you know, meter for normal, like, hey, honey, you used to be able to go out and you would be going on walks or getting groceries and now you're not cooking anymore, you know, uh, or laundry's piling up or day-to-day -day things are slipping. And that's how we take into that and also consistency of it. So everybody has a rough few days. But if you have rough few days every week and consistently over months, then that's also a problem. So it's the um, pervasiveness of the uh, of the illnesses and the symptoms rather than just uh, the symptom itself. That's really interesting because I, I've heard often that it could be 
chemical imbalance. And I think that that is going back to your original statement about commingling uh, the terms. Yeah. And there definitely are various hypotheses in terms of why, you know, um, things happen and why do people get um, some people get depression and other don't, others don't. Why do some soldiers come back from war and have PTSD while others don't? And there's a bunch of common pathways like um, history of mental illness in the family, history of addiction, your genetic vulnerability, your environment, um, you know, any traumas that you might have suffered in your early life as well as sort of hormonal imbalance, like COVID in itself, right? Who predicted this in terms of its impact? However, COVID has had a significant impact on mental health and um, it's led to mental health challenges in terms of sort of social distancing and stay-at-home orders, which have then led to an increase in anxiety disorders and depressive disorders because those were things that people were doing to help maintain their mental health. And that, uh, when that got affected, it was harder for them to maintain their health, mental health. What about um, for minorities? What does the data say? Uh, is there a different prevalence of uh, serious mental illness or, or overall mental illness? Definitely, there is a um, difference when it comes to sort of um, sub-minorities. So anyone that reports sort of two or more races. So they have the highest prevalence of uh, any mental illness. So anybody that identifies, for example, as an Afro-Latina, um, their, uh, their, sub, uh, their rates are higher. So just to give you context, for adults reporting two or more races, the prevalence of any mental illness was about 31.7%, whereas for white adults was 22%. Um, so that's pretty serious. And similarly, when you go into that, uh, that follows through for serious mental illness. And since serious mental illness for adults reporting two or more races, their rates are 9.3%. The lowest was with the white adults, which is 2.6% in that category. So what are some of the warning signs of some of the most common mental health conditions? I mean, what you, you, we talked about in five adults and it easily could be family members. What should we be looking for? Excessive worrying or fear. Keep in mind that anxiety disorders and depressive disorders tend to kind of um, rule the uh, population. So most likely you're going to see people having excessive worrying or fear. And the other, the way to think about excessive is, can you stop? And a lot of people, when they're, you and try to ask your family member, or your friend, or challenge yourself to stop worrying about it and say, I'm not going to worry about it. And can you, or do you keep coming back to it? Or does the fear keep coming back to you? And how easy for it, is it for you to kind of break away from that train of thought? And similarly for um, feeling sad or feeling low, you just, it's days on end. You can't stop. You can't really um, switch off. Other things that people tend to forget is that mood tends to impact your your cognitive abilities. So mood and anxiety disorders will affect how well you perform. So it'll affect your executive functions, so concentrating, learning. All of these become difficult. So if you're finding that you're making more errors and consistently making more errors and there's a downtrend in your performance, that's something to consider if you find um, that you're very irritable consistently, that's another thing to consider. Changes in sleeping habits, changes in eating habits, changes in sex drive, as well as if you're using, you're turning to alcohol a little more and slowly it's gone from one drink a night to two to three, then keep that in mind. The other thing that depression and anxiety will do is will change your experience of pain. 
So you'll have a bit more like my head hurts more and I just have a lot of aches and pains and I don't feel good. And then if you do have conditions that cause your chronic pain, your experience of pain will be worse. And then at any point people are thinking about wanting to end their life or suicide, then of course that's uh, another definite uh, red flag and should people should get care at that point, definitely. Good morning. I'm Amber Smith here with Profiles in Business. We have with us this morning Dr. Osira Kalia, the adult psychiatry outpatient and medical director at Banner. And we are talking about mental health and mental illness. So we talked about those things to watch out for those signs. Uh, um, and you highlighted something that I think has been normalized and that was uh, drinking, you know, which normally you're just having one drink a night. Now it's up to three drinks. We talked a little bit before the show started and I mentioned how normalized drinking alcohol at little league games um, with moms. So has there been an increase as there's been an increase in uh, risk for mental illness? Is, is it, are there changes here? Or has this been um, the norm? There's definitely been changes with regards to substance use as well. And for a while, we were hoping to see a downtrend. However, that there's definitely been an increase in substance use with regards to sort of COVID. That being said, we were seeing an increase in substance use, obviously, before COVID as well. The part that we were talking about earlier was kind of the idea of women um, and alcohol use. And that's definitely been an interesting increase. Um, so there's definitely data that says the alcohol use and misuse amongst women is increasing alcohol-related liver disease in women have been increased up to 30%, according to some data sources. And so women do, and women do face sort of higher risk because they tend to weigh less. And so um, you can't really match drink by drink uh, compared to men in terms of sort of um, body weight. So that also pay, plays into um, how much you can drink and how uh, significant the liver damage becomes. And as you kind of mentioned, there's such an acceptance within social media, mommy needs a drink or uh, mommy's little helper. And like the um, there's it's, it's becoming a bit more accepted in terms of the idea of drinking and not that drinking in itself, social drinking is bad. That is definitely not the message I'm sending here. It is the idea that it's a slippery slope. And so um, drink, but keep an eye on how much you're drinking and how much you're consuming and drinking less is better for health obviously than drinking more and so uh and it's one of those insidious things that kind of just catches up on you and you don't realize it's happening and so i think it's it's great that we're bringing this up i hope that people who are listening are thinking about it and going eh, how much am i been drinking and has that changed and if and for hopefully for some people it sort of sparks them to kind of keep an eye on it and uh, limits them from kind of going down a difficult path because alcoholic liver disease is no fun in general, with mental illness and um, this idea of, of substance use, what what are the main pathways that are contributing um, to this correlation? It's sort of a chicken or the egg kind of a scenario. So there's definitely an an overlap in terms of your multiple national surveys that will show you that about half of the people who experience a mental illness during their life will also experience substance use and vice versa. And so we don't really know whether there is comorbidity between substance use and mental illness and kind of the same thing, right? Substance use can 
substance use and addiction can kind of lead to the development of mental illness because again they're not they're definitely challenging diseases and not easy to live with and similarly mental illness can contribute to substance use and addiction because if you're struggling with anxiety sometimes um, alcohol or substances can really help you um, you know perform on a day-to-day basis and that kind of starts the slippery slope as well and then they also have sort of common risk factors right genetic vulnerabilities, epigenetic issues, stress, environment, all of these things will play into the idea of your struggle with um, alcohol use or other substances. And we um, in Tucson tend to see a lot of opiates and methamphetamine use. We talked a little bit about how women have especially been impacted um, with increase in substance and how, you know, some of that has been through COVID, but even before. What about overall the impact of COVID on our society's mental health? COVID has been quite the challenge. Um, And I mean, there's been discussions in the mental health um, uh, sort of group in terms of a sub epidemic of suicidality and deteriorating mental health. And um, and the hardest hit demographic for a while looked like it was unpaid caregivers and essential workers. So there was a study by CDC kind of early last year in June that said that mental health conditions, you know, were especially being seen in young adults, Hispanic people, Black persons, essential workers, unpaid caregivers, and of course, people who had pre-existing conditions due to um, COVID. And this is, and a part of it is we're an inherently social species. So of course, we're definitely easily impacted when our normal structure and support systems are challenged. But then also it's been kind of stress, it has been additional stress on those that are sort of, you know, the unpaid labor of society anyway. So parents uh, are now responsible for educational needs as well as regular parenting, parenting and professional obligations. And then similarly for those with elderly um, parents, they have been challenged to kind of make sure that their families are okay and they're okay. And then um, for a while we had a huge dip in um, employment. And so that was a challenge in itself. And there was a study, I feel like in 2015, that talked about unemployment increasing the odds of depression three times in adults age 18 to 25 years of age. That is a ridiculous increase. Um, so three-time increase in due to unemployment. And then again, this is another thing that women are hard hit by because you're seeing women leave the workforce force in mass numbers recently. I think it's really interesting. At the Chamber, we're so focused on workforce development and the women leaving the workforce has been a significant shift that we've identified. Uh, to now pair that with the idea that it's also um, can attribute to mental illness is an even uh, scarier figure with that time increase of uh, mental illness for the unemployed. Uh, I think that that is all just staggering. It is um, absolutely staggering. And then the there's, there's kind of a problem here, right? Anybody, um, there was a 2002 study that was kind of cool. And they looked at about 5000 US adults and followed them um, and said, Did you have depression? and then sort of followed up for five years to see how they did in the work arena, um, just to see how do people with depression kind of do. And those with depression had a 60% risk for unemployment, 
and a 90% increased odds of decreased family income in five years. So if you have a risk of depression in that 18 to 30 years of age, it was ridiculous. You were The odds for you to get unemployed were higher, which of course then fed into your risk of depression again. And then 90% risk of decreased family income in five years is um, insane, which also brings to a point, why is it so much harder, so hard to get care and good care for mental illness? Because it's not like it's impossible to treat these conditions and you know people don't get better. People get better. <laughs> Treatment works. And so that becomes an idea of just a general perception of how do we think about support for our uh, people, whether it is a uh, mental health um, coverage and insurance plans and making care easier to find and cheaper to find and, find and making it easier for people to work in this area or things like on a macro level from a country perspective of what is covered in Medicare and Medicaid or things like the idea that um, maternity leave and paternity leave are part of mental health. And they do make a huge difference because I've that are like, I have to go back to work in two weeks because it's unpaid after because my two weeks are unpaid and I have, you know, two kids already that I have to feed. So I have to go back to work two weeks after giving birth, which is in no way easy for bonding or for family or for recovery. So there's many um, social issues that lead to kind of continued mental illness. I think that we could even talk about recidivism. So you have someone yes. um, that has served their time, they get out, and we've heard the statistic about how important it is for them to get employment within, I, I don't remember the number, but something like within 30 days of release, because if you do that, it significantly decreases uh, um, uh, recidivism, um, uh, uh, substance abuse, all of these different things. And what it makes me think of is that unemployment three times the rate huh? um, and some of these other issues. So across the board, there seems to be a lot of opportunity to address many issues through a treatable and opportunity to access those programs. Absolutely. I mean, I think you bring up a great point um, when, because it is a matter of readjusting into society and having some programming that's in place to help you if you are um, having you know because it, it's if you need some support to just get you on your feet so that you are successful because that is kind of the goal of society and it is um, it's kind of a perspective that you need to take is it are we you know are you your brother's keeper or are you not and are you just care, caring for yourself and I think in many ways we are a social society we do take care of each other important kind of things to consider what whichever subpopulation you're looking at and um, these are you know these are things we're tasked for as friends as family members as employers as employees and kind of as a society at large to think about what barriers do we have that are um, increasing the impact of the isolation adding burdens of extra responsibilities and failing some of the subpopulations that do need help I absolutely concur on that. We've identified some of the signs um, that we can see in someone that might be experiencing some of these issues. What are some simple tools that we can use to help with anxiety and depression? Routine. I think if more than, uh, I mean, everybody knows sort of the basics, but I'll say them again, just because it's important to kind of say the basics. Um, good nutrition, good sleep, exercise, enjoy nature, enjoy the things you like to do, whether that's music or um, movies or whatever it is. 
connect with your family members, prize your sleep. So sleep is a big deal. Um, so make sure that you have a consistent sleep for yourself and for your kids, which, um, and then if it's, if you can't really do, if you're not an exercise person, take your kids and do some relay races with them. Anything to get you sort of kind of moving and find places to go away. Make a list of your friends and family. Like just actually sit down, make a list and say, these are the people that I'm going to call and try to make, connect with somebody once a week, twice a week, go from there. And if at all you feel like that these are things that are not working or you're, you heard this and you're like, okay, maybe this is more than just anxiety and regular stress. Maybe this is more than get in to see a therapist or a psychiatrist. Um, feeling suicidal is not normal. And so if you're feeling suicidal, you need to be seen. And there's a couple of national helplines and services that can kind of help you find care. There's a bunch of um, apps now that are offering connection to therapists um, that you can kind of sign up and get online or app therapy if you don't want to go in and you can't um, and you want to kind of try. And a few things sort of thought exercises are always good to kind of say, keep that in mind for yourself. Today doesn't mean whatever is happening today is an indicator of tomorrow. So you, tomorrow's a new day and you can have a better sense of hope um, about it. And if you can't find hope, that's also a problem. I think those are terrific. Uh, I'm a big believer in exercise, something that I uh, really through COVID have improved my routine and make sure to exercise at least, you know, three days a week minimum. And, you know, my friends and colleagues say, oh my gosh, you look great. And I say, well, that just happens to be uh, for my mental health is why I do it. So I strongly encourage people to, to go out and get that 15, 20 minute walk or, or anything, like you said, to just get outside and moving. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. And because, you know, there are people that are like, yeah, yeah, we've heard about exercise, <laughs> whatever. I've heard about it all my life. I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. But that's not necessarily the case. Like people change. You can add other th habits into your um schedule and start small park farther away um and it does it does help with mood it does help with a sense of accomplishment because there are days you people uh, who struggle with depression and anxiety or mental illness just feel like what's the point and um i can't get anything right and so give yourself small achievable attainable wins don't say i'm gonna run a 4k don't start there start yeah, small. no no <laughs> doubt i talk about that i work out first thing in the morning and and that sense of accomplishment is everything because the whole rest of the day can go sideways. And I can always say, well, I at least took 20 minutes for myself and got it done. Um, and, and there's no taking that away. Yeah. Well, we are just about out of time this morning. I suspect the U of A psychiatry website probably has a resource page. Yes, we do have a resource page. Um, so I think go use that resource page to kind of look up what's happening, what are your um, places that you can get care within Tucson. The Crisis Response Center is a lovely place in Tucson where you can kind of go and get care, especially if you're feeling like it's an emergency. It's a standalone psychiatric emergency center, if you will. And then the Shamsha National Helpline, which is kind of the 1-800-662-HELP, which is a treatment referral routing service, is a confidential free 24 hours a day, 365 days a year kind of service in English and Spanish for individuals and family members facing mental or substance use disorders. So um, the resources are out there. But I think on that point, I will say that when you are struggling with something, it's really hard to look things up. So ask a family member to help. Or if family members finding, uh, are finding that 
um, you know, you feel like somebody's struggling, ask them if they need help and say, hey, I'll look this up and I'll help you book something. Because that's also hard to do. It feels like another thing you have to take care of and you're barely surviving, you're barely keeping your head above water. So I hope if anyone is listening and you're thinking of somebody, um, friend, family, whatever, I, it inspires you to call them and say, hey, I just wanted to check in. I've been worried about you. I can help you schedule something if you want. Well, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you, Dr. Saira Kalia. And she's with the Adult Psychiatry Outpatient Medical Director at Banner. And certainly use the Google and look up those resources that are available through uh, the U of A Medical Center. Thank you so much, doctor. Thank you, Amber. This was great. Have a lovely day. Before we officially leave today, I want to remind our listeners to keep Tucson cooking. Union and the Tucson Metro Chamber have partnered up to launch an initiative to encourage Tucsonans to pay it forward to the community by dining local, shopping local, and spending local. Using the power of good storytelling, we hope to help shift those behaviors and get people safely out, putting fuel in our economic engine once again. At the core of our campaign is a one-minute quick video featuring several of our local favorite Tucson people. We invite you to check it all out at keeptucsoncooking.com. And with that, I'm Amber Smith of Profiles in Business by the Tucson Metro Chamber. Have a great end to your weekend.